Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 10th episode of the Global Health Impact Fund podcast. I'm your host, Martin Eels, and we're all excited that you are joining us on this journey where we cover everything investor-related and health-related. Last episode, we had Raja Sundaram, CEO for Plefi, talking about Plefi and how data transforms their company. And for today's episode, you are in for a treat uh, where we talk about how to become a VC. As always, I have me with me my amazing co-host, Dr. Oren Aloni Chavez, co-founder and CEO of the Global Health Impact Fund. Oren, it's an absolute pleasure to have you back. Hey, Martin. I, I feel like uh, it's our 10th anniversary. I should have I don't know, whatever <laughs> paper or something for you. What's what's the 10th anniversary? Uh, yeah. you know, I, I think cake's good. <laughs> I send you a cake. So happy, happy 10th podcast. <laughs> so let's jump into this episode. Do you want to kick us off with, um, you know, venture capital? So there are two markets. There's public and private markets. And the public markets are the markets that we're used to. Those are the markets where anyone with some excess cash um, can, you know, fire up their E-Trade or their Robinhood app and buy stock in a company like Apple. So those are publicly traded markets. Um, the that's the stock market. the The advantages to the public market is they're very liquid. You can move in and out of that market pretty much whenever you want to. Um, the companies are typically more mature, which means relative to the private markets, they're lower risk, but they're lower reward. A lot of the potentially the a lot of the alpha or the profits were really ringed out in the private market. Um, also, uh, this is a more volatile market because it re gets repriced constantly. The private markets are a little different. They're less liquid, so you can't move in and out of the private markets with the ease that you have in the public markets. In fact, in venture capital, when we make an investment, we expect to hold that investment for many years. Um, it's private, so not everyone has access, and it's really primarily only accessible to um, accredited investors today. And uh, you're usually looking at companies in their early stages, which means they're higher risk. Of course, there's a higher reward affiliated with that. And then finally, it's a more stable market just in terms of the fact that you don't reprice this market on a daily basis. So you see less volatility. So for instance, when you have a stock market crash, you don't see the immediate changes in the private market. Now, that doesn't mean that the economic factors don't exist that could influence those companies, but certainly on a day-to-day -day basis, you don't see your portfolio value dropping. One of the interesting things about the private market is that it's not considered insider trading. So when a venture capitalist wants to make an investment in a company, a venture capitalist will get all of the information they can to look at their capitalization table, to look at their finances, to look at their bank statements, to evaluate their patents, et cetera, as we've spoken about. You really can't do things like that in the, in the public market. You know, that's considered insider trading, or at least there's a line that you would cross, you know, when you get certain information that it would be considered insider trading. But in the private market, that's actually commonplace. So, so they're very different markets. Venture capital uh, exists in the public, in the excuse me, in the private market space. And so, venture is a financing tool that allows uh, early stage companies to that are privately held to raise capital. And there's typically two reasons a company 
would be an appropriate venture back company. One is they're looking for seed capital. They're looking to get off the ground. Um, so often, you know, they're a, a small group of people and a great idea and they've put together, you know, enough of a team and, and plan and strategy that they can go to investors and, and bring them on board uh, to invest in the, in the dream, you know, of what that company could be. And that's seed stage investing. Um, in other words, you plant the seed and want to, want to watch it grow. The other is growth capital. And that's where most venture capitalists live. They want to be able to invest a dollar to make a lot of dollars. You know, you really want to have that, um, you know, exponential growth of your investment um, because of your investment. So um, you're looking also because the risks are so high. You're looking for higher returns in those companies, and um, that you know the the combination of high returns and growth really precludes a lot of companies from being good venture back companies. In other words, there are companies that are good, solid companies that will have growth and be very good companies, but they're not really venture appropriate. So the people, if you're looking for investors, it wouldn't really be the venture community. You might be looking to banks, the banks for loans. You might be looking at friends and family or self-funding, but but not really venture. Mm -hmm. Can we just touch on the risk side of this? Yeah. So risk is, um, I mean, these are risky companies, right? So we definitely look at that. We talk about risk and in finance, the the term is beta, volatility or risk, and alpha is the rate of return. And so what we're looking for is, you know, it's hard to talk about risk without reward. It's hard to talk about reward without risk. When we talk about both of them together, you're looking at a ratio and you want to see, based on the risk, you want to see a high rate of return. So if the risk is low, you're willing to accept a lower rate of return because the likelihood of meeting that return is higher. Um, so it's all essentially risk is a probability matrix, essentially. And you're trying to identify what the likelihood of failure is, essentially, in venture. How much, what's, the, what's the possibility that I'll lose everything on this investment? Um, but you're looking at high risk because there are a lot of intrinsic and extrinsic factors that make companies fail. And um, it's definitely part of what we look at when we're doing our due diligence. So I'll give you some examples of why companies fail. And probably one of the major reasons is that a company doesn't have enough capital to succeed. But you need to have a capable and focused uh, management team. Product development has to go as planned. Um, production component sourcing has to go as planned. Competitors have to behave the way you expect them to. Um, you have to have a demand. You have to forecast pricing well. You have to issue and enforce your patents properly. And then, of course, in healthcare, you actually have to have good clinical data that supports yourself, your, you know, your, your um, goals. And so there's a lot of reasons for failure. It's very risky. Uh, you know, so you, you can say, well, you know, this company, it seems like you're getting super rich off of this company. The problem is you have to invest in a lot of companies statistically to get one success. And so you have to factor that whole, you know, that whole sort of miasma of success and failure to look at your overall performance. Yeah. So diversification is key. 
the likelihood of having one company succeed is only about 10% given historical statistics. And so that's putting a lot of um, hope into one company. And so if you diversify, then you have several companies that have a likelihood of succeeding. Of course, you're having smaller investments, so your net returns individually will be smaller, but the likelihood of that success goes up uh, in the portfolio. And the goal is that you're managing really a portfolio not individual companies. Um, some people call it the Babe Ruth effect. And so we all know Babe Ruth, he's this great home run king, right? But what people don't, who aren't as familiar with his record don't know is that he's also a strikeout king. So he got up to bat and when he got up to bat, he swung for the fences every time and he struck out a lot, but he was successful enough that he was still this master of the home run. And venture similar in that, you know, when you get up to bat, i.e. when you make an investment, you want to be able to hit a home run. So you really want to look for compelling metrics in the assumptions that make you believe that this company, given the right circumstances, can execute and return that kind of money to you. And if you make enough of those bets and enough of those come true, that you will have a, a good, healthy portfolio return. You know, beyond that, I'll, I'll add to that, that, you know, when you're investing in venture, rather than saying being a passive angel investor, is that, you know, we're actually getting involved with our companies and, and working with them. And so it's, it's more than just making an investment. It's getting involved, uh, being a part of the strategy and the execution um, to truly manage the companies. And that's in many ways where venture gets really fun because you get to roll up your sleeves and work, you know, elbow to elbow with a lot of really cool entrepreneurs and hopefully make a difference. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And, you know, I think it's a good point as well. The fact that, you know, we're a clinician based fund and we invest in clinicians. You guys are experts in the field. So. Right. And, you know, with, with what we do in our little corner of the woods is that, we really like to look for companies that can be, you know, get value out of the involvement of a large physician network. And there are a lot of ways that that can happen. And we've seen it. We've seen it already in our young fund where we've enabled pilot studies or clinical trials or relationships with hospitals or medical societies or simply found personnel um, or sort of workshopped ideas that, that, companies were thinking about to make sure that they really had a firm foundation in the clinical experience. And it does make a difference. You know, it, entrepreneurship is very lonely. And one thing I think most entrepreneurs would agree with is that you're, you're limiting resources capital, which means you're, you're limited in terms of personnel. It's hard to get to people. And venture capitalists, we don't come in and ask for money. We come in and we make an investment and then collectively try to do help this company succeed. So it becomes this free consultation, uh, if not anything else. Let's touch a little bit on like more like on the healthcare um, due diligence categories, because like you have like the financial story um, to the business story, to the clinical story. Like how important is this uh, as a fund to have all three uh, for the founders? The first thing I look at is the clinical story that they tell. I want to know that they're solving a problem. I want to know who it's going to help and what's unique about it. You know, I, I think that 
I like to talk about iteration versus innovation. And, you know, there are some several iterative products which, be, you know, go on to become really powerful products. I honestly think Facebook is probably iterative off of MySpace, right? Um, but obviously became a, a huge gorilla in the room. So there's nothing wrong with that. But in medicine, I prefer an innovative product over an iterative product because you're, you're breaking new ground and you're not competing for market share. So I like that. Um, uh, or prefer that, I should say. But yeah, it's really important to know that from a clinical standpoint, given enough capital in the right circumstances, that this is important. You don't want to invest in a company that ultimately won't matter, right? And so you really have to kick the tires. And so I imagine these three things that we'll talk about is a pyramid with the clinical story being the base of the pyramid. Um, and really needing to be powerful. And that's the thing that's going to make me passionate and going to make my partners and limited partners passionate about what we're doing. Okay. Because I know like we touched in the past like on how to understand VC uh, in a lot more detail. Like, how does one become a VC? You're nothing if you can't raise capital. So raising capital is definitely the first um, chore uh, or obligation or, or challenge that you have. Um, so you have to go out and raise a, raise a fund. You have to convince sophisticated investors that um, you have a unique story with respect to how you're approaching investment uh, and get them to trust you with, with significant amounts of money. Now, sometimes that can be your own money and you get it started. Uh, usually we like to you know, have skin in the game. So we invest in our own funds, um, but you're still gonna have to convince other people. And then once you have capital or as you're getting capital uh, and you've put together you know, your legal framework and all of the back office things that you require, you're going to need to put a, in place a process for sourcing deals and evaluating deals, right? Because you don't want to invest in just anything. You have to invest in the best companies that will show the best returns. You know, the venture capital general partner does have a fiduciary obligation to the limited partners. You know, you have to do good work. And, you know, ethically, of course you do, but legally you do as well. So, um, so you want to build that infrastructure so that when you're in the marketplace looking at companies, you can really make what you consider to be very good decisions. And then you want to build the infrastructure around supporting those companies. You know, what can you do for them once you've made an investment that can bend their success curve favorably? So all of those, I, I think that those are sort of the three legs of the stool, the three major legs. There's, of course, infrastructure things with accounting and legal that you have to take care of, but that's less interesting with respect to the investments and more maintenance, I think, but has to be also done well and uh, efficiently. So the interesting part is that raising capital is a very different skill set and requires a very different network than sourcing companies. And sourcing companies requires a different skill set than evaluating them. And evaluating them requires a different skill set than supporting them after you've made an investment. So you really have to learn a lot about these things individually. And I think that what I like to do not only you know gain that knowledge 
every day, you know, you learn something more, but also build that network so that each, each of these phases, you can lean on mentors and colleagues and friends to get more information. So you don't have to operate in a vacuum. Right, I think it's huge is having the right network. Like, you know, I'd love to hear the story one day of, you know, why you wanted to become a VC. I went to business school after my residency um, because I thought it would be interesting to differentiate myself uh, as a doctor who had business experience. And uh, when I was in business school, I met and learned about, met venture capitalists and learned more about venture. And, you know, at a high level, venture capital is an, an innovative engine. And, you know, we talk about GDP growth, for instance, gross domestic product growth, and it really has to grow every year. One of the major drivers of growth is innovation. And so it's really critical for our economy to have innovation and venture is a catalyst for that. Beyond that, it's an opportunity to, you know, be very successful financially and to have significant impact. And in healthcare specifically, you know, I worked and took care of patients on a daily basis. It was always this, you know, really beautiful and intimate one-to-one relationship, but there's no scale to that. And if you want to have impact at scale, you have to be looking at solutions that solve problems for many people and not on an individual basis. And again, venture is a way to do that with a lot of different people, you know, you could be an entrepreneur and solve one problem, or I can be a venture capitalist and work with entrepreneurs. And then as a result, be a part of solving many problems. And that's really very exciting. And quite frankly, is probably what drives me personally. And I think my partners is that we, we can really take this information that we've had in one um, experience and use it to make a difference solving problems in this new experience. And you know, it's really very rewarding, quite frankly. So how important is it, like not just for yourself, but like for any upcoming one of APCs, about building the brand? Because we talk about building the brand for the company. How important is it for a VC to build their own brand? That's a great question. Uh, I think brand building in general is very important. You know, we we build our brand all of the time in our personal relationships in in our professional relationships and you know there's oh coke you know like a brand but there's also you know martin's a trustworthy guy and that's a brand you know you're reliable you're hardworking that's your brand and so it is really important and you want your brand to be associated and meaningful with something that you think lends itself to what you do in a way that hopefully promotes you. So we build our brand or try to build our brand to be, you know, authentic and have integrity, but also, you know, be willing to take risks and, you know, look to the future. And you're going to not always be right when you're looking to the future. Um, We look to be a brand of, you know, really insightful doctors who understand the business world and have feet, you know, planted squarely in both worlds. And that's, that's unusual. And to have the clinical expertise that we have and be able to bring that over and to help the startups grow is something that's, that's pretty unique. 
And so I think brand building is important. Certainly when you're an established VC, established is really just, you know, another word for saying you have a brand, you know, and, and so much of what we do is based on trust. So that brand, you know, especially if it's an authentic brand should communicate that trust honestly. Yeah, I agree. So we're running out a little bit of time. Do you want to do the key takeaways today? And key takeaways that you know venture is unique. It's different than public. You know, investing in the stock market, we get access to a lot more information, but that then puts a lot of responsibility on us to be able to go through that and draw you know good conclusions. And uh, you know, when we're looking at clinical startups, that we really want to understand before the story about what the business looks like, we really want to see the clinical impact, why this is important. Um, and you know, as we spoke about in other podcasts, venture capital really look at a number of investments in order of magnitude more of investments than they actually make. So you know, getting getting an affirmative excuse me, decision from a venture capitalist in general is really quite difficult. You know, you can have a big, big uh, amount of money in your portfolio to spend, but you're not investing in hundreds of companies. You know, it's just too much work um, to manage all of those companies. And so, you know, unlike, say, a mutual fund where they have tons and tons of investments, you're really going to focus on, you know, a few companies. So you're going to want to develop relationships with them. And unfortunately, that means you end up, as I said, saying no a lot more than saying yes. Yeah, I think that's important, though, because you can't say yes to everybody, unfortunately. No. <laughs> well, I think that's going to be it for today's episode. Um, but definitely tune in for next week. I can't wait. Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure, as always. I'll see you next week. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay safe.